Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. So, Samhain season, how are we feeling? Yeah, it's here. Like looking out the window, it's it's truly here. But um, mm-hmm. honestly, it's been a weird one. Yeah? Yeah. So I just feel like, I don't know, that with the year starting off with so much like loss, and I know that the thinning veil is kind of like, can get like, thrown around as a witchy buzzword or something but Mm -hmm. just like truly feeling it right now um I know that you were you and I were messaging about this before recording but um yeah just a lot of processing in the fall for me as we head into the dark months but how are you feeling Mm -hmm. yeah you know I'm just like in full cocoon mode if that tells you anything. Uh, But yeah, like the weight of the dark season and just like our own shadows and grief can feel so heavy this time of year. Um, So sending you and everyone else out there a virtual hug who needs one right now. Yeah, listeners, you're not alone. Um, And okay, so I know that in this new format, we're taking listener questions each episode, and we put a call out today for dark month questions. Um, So definitely just, you know, on our Instagrams or to our podcast at tamedwild.com email, send us your questions for future episodes. But for this episode, Kristen, you had the brilliant idea of discussing some book recommendations. Yeah, they're definitely like my lanterns during the dark months. Listeners, one of the top things that Kristen and I are asked about is about our favorite books. But before we begin, I want to mention first that the Tamed Wild website has a wonderfully curated selection of witchy books by the head witch in charge herself, Shelby. And I also want to say that the guests that we've had on this podcast, so many of them have incredible, incredible books. So if you just do a quick scroll through of our guests, read their books, buy their books, support these incredible writers and authors. Kristen, do you want to start us off with some book recs? I would love to. And I just wanted to add to that um, Tamed Wild just started a book coven Mm -hmm. as part of their paid content on Instagram. So if a bookish community is something that interests you listeners, uh, definitely check that out. But as far as what I've been loving lately... Mirrors in the Earth by Asia Suler is quite possibly like one of the most beautiful books I've read in such a long time. The prose is so beautiful. Um, It's a text that you can definitely get lost in. And um, I know we talked a bit about it when we interviewed Asia, but listeners, if you missed it, Um, This book is a memoir. It's a compilation of essays that tell a larger story uh, over the course of the book and the seasons. And it really resonated for me as someone who loves nature and mysticism and wants to invite a bit more uh, self-compassion and self-acceptance into their life. Um, And it was also just like really validating as someone who talks to trees um, Mm -hmm. to hear about someone else talking to trees. Yes. So there's that too. Um, I also just read Stag Cult by mythologist Dr. Martin Shaw, uh, who I know we've mentioned on Magic and Alchemy before, Um, but he weaves together like beautiful tales about nature and wildness and mythology. Um, I know I've mentioned Courting the Wild Twin on here like many times. Um, It's one of my favorites. Such a good Um, one. Oh, it's so good. Um, But for my current reads, I just sat down like a few seconds ago, uh, Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft, Slavic Magic from the Witch of the Woods by Madame Pamita. 
um, which I'm loving, by the way. And I also have Maya Toll's The Night School, Lessons in Moonlight, Magic, and the Mysteries of Being Human. Love um, and it's that like, one. yes, it's at the top of my to read pile. So mm. I can't wait to dig into that. Um, and then also like a bunch of just like vintage thriller, young adult books from my childhood, of course, because nostalgia magic, you know. I loved your um, reel that you made with them. I was like, oh, <laughs> those <you>. covers. <laughs> the covers are gold. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, they definitely just like bring back childhood to me. Um, it's amazing the images that get stored in your brain. Font um, portals. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. But I know you read uh, Mirrors in the Earth, too, and we haven't really you know, had much of an opportunity to talk about it. Um, but does yours have like 100 post-it notes in mind, like highlighting all these beautiful passages? Totally. I'm like a, a dog ear person to like a folding mm. person. And then I realized mm-hmm. I was just folding all of the pages and I was like, I need a better <laughs> system. <laughs> Post-its. But um yeah, yeah, I loved that so much. And then to speak with Asia after reading that was just really, mm-hmm. really grateful for that experience. It's so cool when like an author's voice and their writing just are so um, in conversation with each other, too. Yeah. Um, but as far as my recommendations go, um, you know, there are books that I've loved a long time and books that I return to again and again. Um, This fall, I haven't had much of a chance to read outside of our podcast guests, which is such a good problem to have when they're Mm -hmm. all so amazing. But, um, you know, listeners, we have some amazing upcoming interviews, and I won't spoil them right now by naming their books. So you'll just have to stay tuned and read along with us. But yeah, I loved Asia Suler's Mirrors in the Earth so much, like we mentioned, and I always love revisiting Jennifer Patterson's literature on breathwork. Such great tools there. And also, Kristen and Caitlin, your new copy of Little Witch Host Samhain Suffer is just incredible. It's sitting right here. And it's Aww, thank you. velvety pouch with its beautiful pins. Thank you. <laughs> the listeners definitely, definitely get your copy of that. So good. Um And additionally, our guest today has many stunning books that I know you'll want to read immediately, like incredible. Mm -hmm. And then when I think about the books, like I mentioned, that have been companions to me as a writer and a witch, I think about Starhawk, I think about Clarissa Pinkola Estes, both books and audiobooks. She has some books that are just done as audiobooks, which I didn't realize till a couple of years ago. And they have been such good companions um, on Mm -hmm. road trips, cleaning the house, Mm -hmm. taking naps, listen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's books, my mentor Robin Rose Bennett's books, Incredible, Green Witchery, and like you mentioned, Maya Toll's books. And for my own nostalgia magic, I think about the fantasy novels that I love so much by Tamara Pierce and Bruce Coville and Gail Carson Levine. And those authors all just really inspired me and my love of magic. You know, speaking of classics, I'm revisiting Drawing Down the Moon right now by Margot Adler. And it just never ceases to amaze me that I can read a book like 10 times, but every time I revisit it, I feel like I see something new. Mm, My copy of that is like beloved, you know. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it's another Bible. Mm. But I know we could talk forever about our libraries and all the time-worn pages, but should we go ahead and introduce our guest for today's episode? Let's do it. Daniel Dulski is the author of The Holy Wild, Sacred Hag's Oracle, Seasons of Moon and Flame, Woman Most Wild, and most recently, The Holy Wild Grimoire. A heathen visionary, painter, poet, storyteller, and word witch, she teaches internationally and has facilitated circles, embodiment trainings, communal spell work, and seasonal rituals since 2007. She is the founder of the Hag School and believes in the emerging power of wild collectives and sudden circles of curious dreamers, cunning witches, and rebellious artists in healing our ailing world. Visit her online at danieldolsky.com. 
This conversation was full of crone, hag, witch, and heathen magic, propelled forward by Danielle's love of language and word witchery. Danielle reminds us to follow that inner creative light and impulse and to seek out and celebrate all that is wild in the self and in stories. She urges storytellers to tell the story they were born to tell, to descend into the underworld and return to the surface, changed and empowered. Danielle joined us via Zoom from her home in Pennsylvania. to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby. And I'm Kate Ballou. And today we have a very special guest with us, Danielle Dolsky. Hi, Danielle. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for hanging out with us today. <laughs> yeah. So we love to begin our interviews um, asking our guests about their big three in astrology. So would you mind sharing yours? Sure. I am an Aquarius sun a uh, Leo rising and an Aries moon. Ah, fellow Aquarius sun, Aries moon here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. You are my people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the struggle is real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that Aries moon, when I learned about that, I was like, oh, my teenage years finally make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. My Aries moon drives a lot of what I do. I was just mm -hmm. um, talking to somebody that told me that if you have an Aries moon, that your version of self-care is actively creating as many things as possible all the time. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> no bubble baths for us. <laughs> Danielle, can you share um, a bit about you and your work in your own words? Yeah, so I am a storyteller, artist, uh, word witch, poet, writer, what else? Teacher and mother of two uh, wild children. <laughs> and mm. um, I believe that, uh, you know, if you're here and you claim the name witch, that there's a reason for that, given the strange chapter in the world story that we're all living. Um, so, yeah, I always think about why witch, why now? And what did I sign up for? And <laughs> what am I trying to keep in view while I'm working with people and um, engaging in ritual and embodied practices and encouraging people to write their own stories and think about what their personal myths might be? So, yeah, that's part of why I'm here anyway. <laughs> mm. And you mentioned word witchery. So what does it mean to be a word witch? And what is word witchery for anyone who might be new to this concept? Yeah, I feel like I give a different answer to that question um, every time that I've asked it. But to me today, you know, um, words were the original spells. Uh, spells are born of our language. And so maybe, you know, an old storyteller talking around a fire and sharing a fairy tale was the original spell that was cast. So when I think about word witchery, I'm thinking about using your own words or maybe potentially somebody else's words in order to allow language to illuminate what wants to be seen. So sometimes that's the next steps. Sometimes it's something that was hidden from the past, but word witchery is kind of a form of, um, you know, oracular divination and um, letting writing be a little bit more magical than we were told it was in school. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Have you always been a writer? Yes, I used to write. Um, I remember writing like um, adolescent erotica in my <laughs> grandparents' cabin yes. when I was like <laughs> 10 and 11 years old. And I still have one of those stories. And it's like pretty good <laughs> for a 10 year old, <laughs> for a 10 year old. So yeah, I've, I've written um, stories for as long as I can remember. Yeah, definitely. And I know you have a new book out. The Holy Wild Grimoire. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about the title a little bit and what those words mean to you. 
Sure. I'll start with grimoire just because we were talking about word witchery. So the etymology or, or sort of the history of the word grimoire is grammar. So a grimoire, even though now we think of it in its traditional occult context, being a book of spells or correspondences, originally it just pointed to the magical nature of words. So that's the way I'm framing that word in the title of my new book. It's not so much a book of spells, although there are spells in there. It's more about allowing the reader's own writing, so responding to different prompts that are in the book, to allow that to be a vehicle for divination. So that's sort of how I'm framing grimoire. And then Holy Wild. So I had a book called The Holy Wild, A Heathen Bible for the Untamed Woman, come out in 2018. And it's funny kind of thinking about the evolution of what that phrase means to me then versus now <laughs> because the holy wild was written from such an intense place of rage in 2016 and 2017 and you know now the holy wild seems to me much more rooted in the elements and nature and awe even though the world stories may be even more strange and volatile than it was in 2016 so yeah, so I'm thinking about the Holy Wild as being kind of like a homecoming and grimoire being uh, pointing toward the magic of words. I know that um, in another book of yours, uh, Seasons of Moon and Flame, which I love, by the way, uh, the stories are arranged seasonally. And in the Holy Wild Grimoire, the book is arranged according to the elements. Um, and I wanted to know if you could speak about that and the role that the elements play in your magical practice. Yeah, I love those lenses of the elements and the seasons, um, primarily because I teach a lot and people are always trying to get at what's a more universal lens, like what's something that anybody can have as a touchstone, regardless of what their ancestry is. Um, so, you know, we all are, we are all of the earth. So the elements make sense. Everybody can kind of feel what the fire element means versus the water elements. Um, so I like the elements just because they're so universal as a lens to look through. And then we can see all of these different aspects of ourselves and life areas through the lens of the elements and anybody can do it regardless of what their personal story might be. Mm. And the elements are so closely tied to the seasons, like you both just said. And so with Samhain right around the corner, what elements are speaking the loudest to you right now? Right. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting because I have a pretty strong yogic background and that's, this is the one season autumn where sort of the Celtic uh, cosmology in terms of the elements is flipped versus the Vedic cosmology. So mm. in Ayurveda, this would be the season of air and ether because everything's kind of becoming drier um, versus we think of the West and autumn as being the water element and the Celtic cosmology. So for me, it's kind of a marriage of the two. I, in my spell casting, I tend to look at it in terms of the West and the sea and letting go and death ritual and all of that. But in terms of my own embodied practices, I tend to consider air and ether and it being kind of a season of drying out a little bit and lightening a little bit and yeah being a little closer to the ether and in your book of ether i i jotted down this quote uh that you you wrote to be a witch is more than the practice of the craft it is an embrace of the name witch a claiming it for one's own and a commitment to a beginning rather than an end the witch is no master but an eternal student which is beautiful. Um, and can you speak a little bit more about your definition and relationship to the word witch and also about the power of claiming and committing to that name for oneself? Yeah, it's it's such a such a weighted question. But like to me, my definition of witch has remained pretty consistent, I think, since I started really practicing witchcraft in my early 20s. So that was about 20 years ago, which is like a witch is anybody that claims the name witch for themselves and practices witchcraft. So mm. uh, and I think that, you know, that can mean 
any number of things to different people. What does practicing witchcraft mean? Um, to me, witchcraft is an art rather than a religion. Um, I do work with deity in my practice, but it's much more about uh, the the beauty of creating an altar or creating a spell. And then the macrocosm of that would be creating the life that you want and carving away what doesn't belong and all of that. So I like to think about that as an art um, because there's so many parallels between what I learned in art school <laughs> and my witchcraft. And I could go on and on about that, but I won't. But yeah. Witchcraft as an art and a witch being anybody that claims that name and practices witchcraft, whatever that means to them. So would you say then that witchcraft being an art is really, um, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but it intersects with our creative flow or maybe supports it and can influence it. Um, I know Kate and I have often talked about how during these moments of creative flow when all this is coming to you and all these words that it really feels like a form of channeling and it feels like magic in itself. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it comes back to the the, the concept of vitality, the witch's vitality. So whatever makes you feel the most alive. And for most people that is creating something, whether it's a garden or a painting or a dance or something like that, the art, your art and what you're here to do, um, and be who you're here to be. It speaks to the, your own inner vital forces. So when you invite those vital forces into a spell container, for instance, if you love to paint and then you paint in order to raise energy in a spell, or you love writing. And so you write in order to raise energy in a spell that just amplifies the spell like times 10,000 versus, you know, trying to follow some kind of rote recipe that doesn't invite you to be fully alive in that moment. So yeah, I absolutely believe that. And you mentioned uh, ancestral veneration just a few moments ago. Um, and I know that that's really important. And that remembrance um, is a big focus for witches right now at Samhain. Uh, and in your book, you talk about having, you know, this deep reverence for ancestral stories. So why do you think this is so important? Yeah, ancestral stories are. Um, I just told I just told the story of my great grandmother um, in our virtual coven container that we have on Sunday. And even though I've told that story quite a bit because she has a pretty epic story, um, not on the surface, but in the telling, the story becomes epic. Right on the surface, she was a seamstress who lived in Detroit for a little while. But when her great granddaughter tells her story, it becomes she becomes comes kind of holy and even a little bit deified in some ways. So yeah, speaking the stories of your ancestors can be a vehicle for lineage healing. It can, it heals you. It heals other people that are listening to the story because when we speak the stories of our dead, uh, you know, everyone hears something that resonates with them or makes them think of their own ancestors. So yeah, I love ancestral storytelling and I believe it to be, um, a, an incredibly powerful practice that we've sort of been taken away from. And yet this time of year, we all kind of feel called to do it. So um, there's something in our bones that's of the bone memory that we just want to speak the stories of our dead and our ancestors this time of year. So yeah, I really recommend it. Even if you're just sort of speaking to your dog or your cat and telling the stories of your grandmother or great grandmother, it's such a great um, healing practice for everyone there even your dog. <laughs> My great grandmother is from Detroit too. So I'm just over uh, here. Like yeah. <laughs> you said that my eyes kind of welled up for a second. I was like, wait, I'll <laughs> maybe tell they you knew the each other. <laughs> maybe they did. I'll have to tell you the story sometime. Cause it's so funny. Yeah. She lived on eight mile road. She's not from there, but she did live there for about 15 years. Yeah. Eight mile in Woodward. I don't know. Oh, I don't man. know. But yeah, <laughs> her husband had a floral shop, florist shop on Eight Mile Road, and then she left him because he was incredibly abusive for another man who also had a florist shop on Eight Mile Road. <laughs> so it's sort of like the rival florist shops on Eight Mile Road <laughs> and Grammy Myrtle kind of causing an even bigger rift. 
<laughs> Myrtle, the icon. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, now we all need to hear more stories. <laughs> mm, just piqued our interest here. So is that um, online container, the Hag School that you you teach? Or is that a different program? Yeah, no, that's correct. The Hag School has a virtual coven and we just had our... Um, our silent supper ritual, which of course wasn't silent because we're virtual. So we're talking, but we did our best with trying to have a traditional silent supper, telling the stories of our dead and eating their favorite foods and chanting and things like that. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about the importance of finding um, guiding myths during times of uncertainty. Can you expand on this? Yeah. So a a myth or it doesn't have to be a myth. It could be a fairy tale or a folk tale or even sometimes the Netflix series that you're watching. But having what I would call a story lantern that is pointing you toward what archetypes are maybe most needed in in your life. Like what, what are the medicinal archetypes? Sometimes we're drawn to the stories that have those medicinal archetypes in them. So Sometimes I'll point people toward like, instead of admonishing themselves for being distracted by the Netflix series that they're watching to kind of name what the archetypes are in that series, because maybe that's what they need. You know, if they're watching something that has a lot of royalty, kings and queens in it, then maybe it's speaking to their inner authority or their inner sovereignty and their need to maybe have that be more amplified, for example. So it can be a guiding myth, which of course is would be the older Um, older of those different categories of story that I named, but any story will illuminate, you know, what's needed. If you look to not just the entire plot line, I think sometimes people can feel that it's too overwhelming to look at the whole of a story. And I think that we're sort of trained to do that in school, but really it can be just one image from a story that holds all of the medicine that we need. So you can pull these different images or scenes from a story, almost like Oracle cards, and then ask yourself like, what is the message of this particular scene? Why am I feeling so um, sort of like a visceral reaction to this particular scene? So that's how I look at having these guiding myths. It sort of reduces the um, overwhelm of (laughs) thinking of all of the different life areas and it illuminates like just that one thing that needs to be seen in that moment. Do you have any favorite archetypes I have to ask or any you're working with right now in your own craft? I don't know if I would use the word favorite. (laughs) Yeah, right. I definitely have uh, the wounded healer archetype has been a pretty big and consistent theme since uh, late 2019. And it continues to be so probably wounded healer is the most amplified archetype in my world right now. Yes. Mm. (laughs) And that full moon on Sunday conjunct Chiron. I know. I know it did. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh just again and again the the work never being done. <laughs> mm-hmm. In your book you use the word heathen quite a bit. And I'd love to read the the very first lines from your new book, if that's okay with you. Sure. Only in these secret memories where our feeling flesh meets the mystical do we learn our real names. Only in our own tales of death and resurrection do we understand the deep and mythic meanings inherent in our life story. To be heathen means to live on untamed ground, to peel back the dried, scaly, ill-fitting crest of who we were told to be, to claw our way up from the underworld and emerge with pomegranate juice gushing from our tongues, and an incendiary desire to be known, to be wholly known, burning beneath our creaturely mud-caked skin. So that's beautiful, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and yeah, and I just was wondering um, if you could talk about your relationship to the word heathen um, and its nuances and meaning. 
Yeah, well, the etymology of heathen is to live on untamed ground. So it's like dweller on the heath, the pagan people from the Celtic lands. So they were the original heathens because they had not yet converted to Christianity. Um, and they tend to, tended to be in more rural areas. So that's sort of the root of the word is to sort of live on the fringes and on untamed and un. Uh, cultivated land. Um, however, during, when I was a child, I was called heathen quite a bit by my mother and a few teachers uh, in church and school. I went to a um, super born again Christian school until I was 12 years old. So I was called heathen quite a bit as if it were a bad thing. <laughs> and um, I you know, didn't really know what it meant other than maybe sinner. And so as I, you know, got older, when I was 18, I moved to Ireland and I lived there for six months and I sort of came to a new knowing about my Irish ancestry. And I found this way of um, coming home to a, a, a magic that wasn't really taught, but could only be felt and really only felt in complete solitude. Um, and even one that I couldn't really share with anybody else either. And so thinking about heathen as this like complete stripping down of all of those things that can kind of bind a craft too much or, or restrict the magic too much and finding the most like undiluted form of what that means, which is, you know, just being on complete untamed ground and then being in this place where all of the indoctrinate indoctrinated beliefs have been stripped away and you're sort of bare bones why am I here? <laughs> so to me, that's a little bit about why the word heathen is important. We're always wanting to strip away what we've been told to want in order to figure out what we actually want. So yes. There's that um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes quote that's like, be wild. That is how you clear the river. And I always think about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, the the creative river. Yeah, I know that. Mm -hmm. I remember that chapter. Yeah, so good. He then just really felt like a reclamation when I was reading this book. Like, I truly felt like you were just like reclaiming that word. And it's similar to when we reclaim witch. So many of us like it's it it means quite a bit. And I feel like it really showed in your book. Yeah, thank you. Right. I'm, I'm always very interested in those words that like feel just a little bit sharp, um, mm -hmm. like heathen, like wild, like which maybe used to be <laughs> and like hag, mm -hmm. hag still feels that way. Right. Just like a little bit sharp, like, ooh, uh, why does that kind of prick me a little bit? So, yeah, heathen still does that for me. Mm. In the conclusion of your new book, you write that the remedy for apathy is awe. So can you speak a little bit about awe as a magical practice? Yeah, um, I think that that is the, the remedy for apathy is awe. That was something that I named in late 2019, where I just sort of like a lot of my my witches in my circle did felt like something was coming, but we didn't really know exactly what it was. And it really, a kind of lack of vision or a lack of being able to see that I know a lot of people felt, especially in March and April and May of 2020, just even like the greatest seers and prophets that I knew were saying they really can't see past <laughs> a few months. And it was, it was really hard to be and still be in a kind of dark and uncertain place. And I think it can send you in, send anybody, myself included, into a place of apathy where it's like, well, I guess I'm not in control of a lot of this anyway, so I might as well just give up. Um, and I think that for me, when I feel that feeling, which I do often, um, especially now election season, I feel that feeling of at, like wanting to just kind mm -hmm. of throw in the towel, um, that it can be an invitation to, instead of falling into apathy, maybe sometimes it's necessary, but sometimes it's not helpful to fall into apathy. So instead, can you look at what's beautiful about this moment? And I, um, can get into my Aquari Aquarian-ness here, but 
if we step back and kind of behold the larger story um, of what we're living right now, that there is a kind of bizarre and even grotesque beauty in it. And you can be in a place of awe of that, not, not a inactive awe and not a frozen awe, but just an appreciation that you're here for this. Um, I kept saying over and over again in 2020, like, I can't believe I get to be here for this. <laughs> like, and mm -hmm. like the story mm -hmm. wasn't good. We lost people. So it wasn't like I was over romanticizing that part of the apocalypse or anything. But it just was so stunning that like, oh, I chose to be here for this. Like that there's kind of a miracle in that. So, yeah. So the remedy for apathy can be awe, definitely. And from like a witch's perspective, do you think that, um, like ritual can help support us as well during like these uncertain times. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's different types of ritual. I think even the more utilitarian rituals, like the things that we do every day, I drink my coffee in the morning. I drink my tea every night. I take the dog for a walk twice a day. So those aren't particularly magical rituals, uh, but they're important for me to do. And mm -hmm. so though even those can be these touchstones that can give shape to your day. And, um, one of my teachers, Michael Mead, who's a great storyteller, he says like, you always want to go to bed at night and be able to say, I was really alive for that part of the day. And so if you can have a daily ritual that speaks to your inner vitality, where, you know, if nothing else, you had that thing that made you feel really alive for that part of the day. So that can be lighting three candles on your altar and just feeling incredibly present in the moment and maybe naming one small thing for which you feel grateful. Like that small kind of rooted ritual can be the moment that you felt really alive for that day. So it doesn't have to necessarily be an elaborate experience with a lot of other people engaging in ritual. To me, those are um, those require so much um, inner resources, you know, they require time, but they also require energy and they aren't necessarily meant to be done all the time. So letting those bigger embodied rituals be more seasonal and then having these, you know, much, much, much smaller rituals that don't deplete any of your resources, be more of a daily practice can give you touchstones when we're sort of feeling like we're swimming in this deep ocean of time <laughs> mm -hmm. right now. Right. So your book is such a beautiful framework for supporting someone um, on a creative journey or a creative process. But do you have any advice for our listeners um, in beginning a creative process or if they feel like they're carrying a story and, and so badly want to tell it? Yeah. So for beginning, beginning a creative process or even um, beginning a practice of the craft, to me, it's the same. You sort of go back and you look throughout your life story. And so even like go back to childhood, because sometimes that's the most fertile. And that's true. Even if you had a very difficult childhood, like I did, you can go back and find the moments when you felt the most alive when you really felt like you were fully present in the moment. And these aren't long chapters in your story. So it wouldn't be like, well, when I lived in that place, I was really happy for five years. It's these fleeting moments in time, maybe when you were watching the sunrise or when you had your hands in your in the dirt and you were planting a garden, these moments in time. And it takes a while because, you know, you're going back through your whole life. So depending on how old you are, I'm 42. It takes a long time for me to go back and think of all of those moments. And then you look for the patterns in those moments. So if maybe it's always morning, maybe you're always moving, walking or dancing, maybe you're always alone, maybe you're always in community. So you look for the patterns in those moments when you felt like you were the most you. And that's how you, that points you toward what your art is. And even though it's such mm -hmm. a pointed word, 
purpose, it means the thing to be kept in view. The etymology of purpose is the thing to be kept in view. So if we go back and reflect on our story, we can see really what's always been trying to be in our view. And then we can amplify that, whether it's in our creative process or in telling a story. You sort of um, can see it in a new storyteller's eyes when they're speaking about something that made them feel really alive. They get this fire behind their eyes. And that's what you want. You want that in witchcraft. You want that in storytelling. You want that in any art. Mm. I'm just so lost in that. <laughs> I'm like, wow. <laughs> um. So I just want to back it up for a couple minutes here, Danielle. I know we're uh, running out of time, but I was wondering if you would talk about the Hag School a little bit. I know uh, Kate mentioned it earlier, and I was just hoping you would tell us a little bit more about it and who's it for. Yeah, well, the Hag School's for anybody, um, mm-hmm. and there's there's a lot of different things that we do. When Hag School was born in 2019, it was meant to be primarily in real life, you know, real life circles that met and got together. And then, of course, 2020 happened, and um, a lot of things moved online. But then we were able to do a lot more and you know reach a lot more people also. So we have several virtual covens. Um, One of them is specifically for writing. One of them is a general witchcraft coven that meets once a month. We have the Hive of the Holy Wild Flesh, which is a movement coven that also meets once a month. And we have our Heathen Imaginarium that is kind of Lene's brainchild. Um, Lene's our Hag School manager. And that is a virtual box of muse and we have a wilderness guide training that corresponds to the heathen imaginarium so people that want to work with archetypes and facilitate circles for other people whether it's virtually or in real life we have a training for that through the hag school i have a witchcraft apprenticeship which is real life um so i do have some real life things still (laughs) some things just can't be taught virtually um so yeah, we have a lot of things going on at the Hag School. It was sort of born uh, in a little bit of a fever dream. And then I got together with nine of my favorite witches and we co-created this, this great thing that's talking about how the witch stays a step ahead. I really felt like we were a little bit a step ahead creating this thing in 2019 that could hold different versions of our work, you know, not knowing what was about to happen um, with meeting people in real life and retreats and all of that. So it was a great thing. <laughs> it sounds so magical. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it is. I've met some incredible people that I would never, if I only taught in person, I would never have met a, a lot, hundreds of people that I've been able to meet virtually. So, yeah. Also, just shout out to Lene because I just love Lene so much. <laughs> yeah, she's so great. I know. Yeah, without Lene, the Hag School would look very, very different. And not a lot of people would know about it. (laughs) (laughs) And for people who want to um, take part in these in-person events, uh, where do they take place? So the in-person events right now, um, they take place in central New York. So we have a 34-acre property in central New York near Utica. Um, It is camping. So it is pretty, it's not, you know... It's not really glamping. <laughs> You're in a tent and then we do a lot of our work in the barn and then out on the land. Um, but yeah, writer's retreats and then um, the witchcraft apprenticeship meets on the land. So yeah, but more to come there, I'm sure. I saw a meme once and it was like something along the lines of like, when I think about the cottage witch I want to be, and it's like, you know, looks all magical and like a long dress and like animals all around. And then it's like what it's really like. And it's just like a full like snowsuit situation or like long jacket beanie. Um, Because yeah, it's not always glamorous, although it feels very glamorous, you know, when you're in the moment. So right. um, But the property looks really beautiful. I've looked at the images online and it does look a little bit like glamping. It's a little bit looks like a step up from the standard, 
Yeah. They do have when real I, mattresses. They're not on air mattresses. They have real mattresses. That's glamping. But That's total. I was I was picturing my one person pop up pop up tent. I was like, <laughs> I will I'm driving to Utica. I've got the one person <laughs> pop up tent. I'm good to go. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we had this epic lightning storm during one of the events in mm-hmm. July and it was like, it was pretty terrifying. It was like, um, the only time I've been worried about the people in the tents. And I was like, I don't even have a backup plan for this. So now of course we do, my husband and I, we have a plan for if it happens again, so it'll never happen again. But everybody talks about like, that was their epic moment of realization. Everybody ha- came to some sort of epiphany during that huge lightning storm, being in a tent and wondering if they were going to make it. (laughs) So there's a reason it happened, but it was terrifying in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Lightning is a lesson. Yes, Mm -hmm. always. (laughs) Camping is also a lesson, I will say, in itself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Bug bites. And uh, Mm -hmm. we do usually have the weather on our side, but that's only because um, what Kristen was saying about the snowstorms, like the property is under feet of snow from around now, October until like early June. So (laughs) there's, Mm -hmm. there's, we sort of have this really fertile time for having outdoor events, but it's not a, it's not a year round situation. We w- nobody would want it to be. And do you have any upcoming projects that you're excited about? The uh, the Heathen Imaginarium Wilderness Guide training is Linnea and I's newest thing. So that's probably what feels most alive right now. Um, I have a one-day writing immersion coming up for Yule in December, which is sort of like writing as prophecy and being able to dig out prophecies from your writing. So that's my next biggish upcoming thing. But yeah. And then kind of in January and February, I take time off and think about my life for a little bit. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. <laughs> it's so important to the process to do that. It is. I know. Yeah. Like Hag School was born in one of those, in one of those like late December, early January. Let's really step back here and see what we're doing here. <laughs> The crone what, cocoon. Yeah, exactly. The crone <laughs> cocoon. I love it. That's that's exactly what I want. I long for it like all year. And then when it's here and I design, you know, my works that I don't have anything to do for those eight weeks or whatever. And then I'm all like bored and wondering like who I am. And <laughs> it ends up being this real like identity crisis right around my birthday every year. So at least it's somewhat predictable. <laughs> mm. What day, Aquarius, are you? January 23rd. Oh, I'm the 29th. <laughs> oh, yay. Yeah, we have Oprah and Dr. Estes are right in between us. Mm. I think Oprah's the 25th and Dr. Estes is the 27th. So, Magic. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, those uh, those days of January can be pretty... Uh, a reckoning, a reckoning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> When I was like yeah. nine, I was like, why is it now? Like, why do some people get to be born July 15th and I am I here know. in Michigan on the 29th? <laughs> I know. Yeah, same. My sister was born in June, so I got to see how different our birthdays were celebrated. <laughs> mm-hmm. Forged in the fire, the winter yes. fire. Yeah, it's yes. important. <laughs> Danielle, do you have any last minute thoughts or words for our listeners as we enter the dark months? Yes, I do. Um, We are coming up on what's often called the 13th moon. So every, every nine years, we get an actual 13th moon in the year, but we usually don't have a full 13th moon cycle. And so the 13th moon are those four or five days that follow cross quarter Samhain, which this year is November 7th. So we have this week of like November 7th, uh, through what the 11th, which is this 13th moon, moon time. And when you don't name it, it can be a very strange time 
because it's the void. It's sort of the mm-hmm. void of the year. It's like peak veil thinness. And so the medicine for that 13th moon void is rest, ritual, and reflection. I call it the three R's of the 13th moon. So you really want to try to, if you can, you know, avoid um, doing too much at that time. And then also, like I was saying with ritual, it's not really big epic resources, uh, resource rich rituals that are going to cost you a lot of money and time, but these really simple rituals that just bring you home and feel like a touchstone and then reflection. So reflection's a big one because the etymology of reflection, I'm such a word nerd, but the etymology of reflection, it means to bend back. And so we think of how we reflect on the past and how we see our reflection in a mirror. And whenever we reflect on the past, it's really just as much of a reflection on who we are in that moment as the reflector. For example, if I were to say, what was the greatest moment of 2022 in your life? You'd say something. But if I asked you that question tomorrow, you'd probably say something different or slightly different. So We want to look at reflection as not being a way of caging the past, uh, you know, in this box where it can't ever break free or become something different. But reflection is being a practice for allowing the your your memories to teach you who you are in that moment because of the way you're framing them and the story that you're telling about them. So, yeah, that's my that's my medicine for the, the darker days, rest, ritual and reflection that's not super judgmental on (laughs) the past and lastly before we go where can listeners find your work yeah so i have two two websites so danieldolsky.com just my name and then the hagschool.com has most of my teaching containers are are there and that's the that's the best way to get to me oh and i'm i'm wolfwoman witch on instagram Thank you so much, Danielle and listeners, for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Tune into next week's episode for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.